Welcome. This is <coughs> October 19th, year 2006, and it's the Ontolog mini-series on ontology measurements and evaluation kickoff session. Uh, we have Dr. Stephen Ray, the program lead for this uh, mini-series, uh, who's going to open the session for us. Uh, Steve, all yours. Okay, uh, thank you, Peter. This is Steve right here. And uh, this series sort of came out of some discussions in the Ontolog forum earlier. Uh, it was one of various topics that were put forward as uh, perhaps a topic which could supply um, a good grist for a series of discussions. So uh, the whole idea of <coughs> uh, the need to evaluate ontologies and even talk about what would quality mean comes up. But um, before I get into just some introductory touching on some of the questions there, I want to allow uh, the co-sponsors. This is actually sort of a co-sponsored by three parties. Uh, uh, Ontolog, of course, the Ontolog Forum, which is where we are. Uh, NCOR, which is the National Center for Ontological Research, which is co existing at both um, University at Buffalo and at Stanford, and then also um, with, uh, well, I guess that's the three, NCOR, Ontolog, and NIST, I guess, I forgot NIST, where I am, um, and, and I'll cover that in just a moment. I know that Barry Smith, who is uh, one of the co-founders of NCOR, can't stay the whole time, so Barry, if you want to just say a few remarks about NCOR, uh, to kick us off here, and then we can um, let you go. Great. So I will be listening to as much as I can. Uh, ENCOR was founded almost exactly a year ago, and its principal mission is to try and raise the level of quality in ontological development and, and ontological applications. And so the, um, the idea for this series was obviously very welcome, and I, I think I can say that the idea grew out of the ENCOR Evaluation Committee, in which Steve Ray has played a very important role. We are not going to raise the quality of ontology unless we have good measures of quality and unless we understand the dimensions of quality which are relevant to serious applications. And so developing evaluation measures is really an absolutely crucial goal. Uh, I want to mention two events. The first is the second NCORE plenary event, which will take place on uh, Thursday evening, 9th of November, as part of the FOICE meeting in Baltimore. And you can find details of this event and of the other event on the NCOR website, which is NCOR.us. That's National Center for Ontological Research, NCOR.us. The second meeting is a training event and presentation workshop entitled Ontology for the Intelligence Community, which will take place in Columbia, Maryland on November the 30th and December the 1st, and we have now representatives speaking from the CIA, the FBI, we have people who were formerly working at the uh, National Security Administration, and we have one representative from the uh, Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Technical Advisory Group, and the goal of this meeting is to try and put ontology to practical tests in the area of data management in the intelligence domain. 
And you can find information about this meeting also on the NCOR.us website. Okay. Um, uh, second speaker is uh, we wanted to invite Leo Oberst to talk a little bit about the Ontologue forum itself, uh, but I'm not sure if Leo's on the line yet. Are you there, Leo? If not, uh, maybe I'll, I'll sort of uh, chip in. Okay, please do, Peter. PDM, I'm one of the three co-conveners of the Ontolog Forum, and uh, this is another very important day for Ontolog because uh, we again bring together major collaborators to explore an issue that is worthy of our time and effort in the domain near and dear to most of us here in the community. Uh, if you look at the uh, Graphics here. I I try to. I mean, forget about the words. I mean, they are just there for completeness. But uh, I try to represent Ontolog in one picture, and I've uh, done this uh, sort of put together this cartoon with John McCarthy and Doug Engelbart meeting in a tavern. Uh, McCarthy is my icon for machine-centric computing, and Engelbart my icon for human-centric computing. And finally, we are at the day and age with technology advanced enough to allow us to have a meaningful dialogue about enabling both in this open virtual setting. Uh, I was sort of very happy to learn of the uh, MIT Center for Collective Intelligence that launched last Friday. I even made a post on the Ontolog Forum about it uh, because this mode of interaction is finally going to get a lot more attention. Uh, Tom Malone, the director, put it rather succinctly together by saying that the key question they use in organizing their work is how can people and computers be connected so that collectively they act more intelligently than any individual group or computer has ever done before. And when I heard that, I said, that's us. Uh, Ontolog is trying this both in our technology endeavor and in the process we are going about it. So now that we've engaged some of the most prestigious institutions and some of the best minds in the domain, let's go for it. Uh, of course, I would like to thank Encore and NIST for teaming up with us, and I would like to express my special appreciation to Dr. Stephen Ray for providing the leadership in this mini-series. Thank you. Back to you, Steve. Thanks, thanks Peter. Uh, this is Steve again. Um, if Peter, if you just advance the slide, just a 30-second introduction to NIST. Uh, if people, we used to be a long time ago, the National Bureau of Standards, but we're all about measuring things. And it traditionally had been measuring physical things like the fundamental units of measure, uh, of which they are listed there, in case you were ever curious, all seven of them at the top of that triangle on the right. Um, but more recently, of course, um, we are also getting more involved in measuring things in the um, information world as well. And uh, if you advance the slide, Peter, one more, uh, in the context of the fact that NIST sees itself and is the United States' national Metrology Institute, National Measurement Institute. Um, we that that's kind of part and parcel of what we're all about. We we want to be there to provide the measurement infrastructure 
upon which commerce can take place. So if you're buying or selling barrels of fuel or or bales of hay and you have to weigh them or whatever, that's sort of intrinsic to the ability to transact commerce is to be trusting one another as to quantities of hay in the physical world. But ever increasingly, obviously, uh, in our information-based world, we depend upon um, a reliable infrastructure of information as well. And so it, it actually fits very nicely into our mission that we see ourselves as uh, playing a role in, in assuring the integrity of the information infrastructure, just as we do for the physical infrastructure. Now, my personal uh, conviction is that the uh, information standards, of which there are many, you know, how do you send information from point A to point B, uh, certainly information standards that convey uh, content information. I'm not talking about bits and bytes and network packets, but rather conveying meaning, um, I think is where ontologies and semantic technology play are going to have a huge future. Uh, standards are all about precise definitions of terms and meaning, and that's exactly what uh, formal semantics and ontologies are also about. So my personal conviction is that in the future, most all standards at the content level will, in fact, be uh, in one form or another related to ontologies, um, or at least uh, formal logical specifications. So it's for that reason that I am jumping into this whole area, you know, full bore, uh, because that's where we see NIST as a mission to play um, to help the, uh, the world of standards in that regard. So uh, with that, I just want to introduce the series itself. Um, on the next slide uh, today, obviously, here we are, October 19th. I thought it was especially fitting uh, to ask Chris Welty to speak, and I'm very happy he accepted that. Uh, I heard Chris a number of years ago when he first uh, was, uh, I was hearing him talk about OntoClean, which uh, has a lot to do, obviously, with uh, quality of ontologies, as you will hear. Uh, so I thought that fit very nicely in. Um, Barry, in turn, I know feels passionately about uh, the need for some kind of assured quality control over what will be ultimately a huge explosion of ontologies. Uh, whether we have a good housekeeping seal of approval, I think, is a term Barry's used in the past, or quite how that comes about, but um, certainly is, is an important need. Um, I haven't actually yet invited Werner yet, but uh, he'll be hearing from me uh, soon. Um, and then the, the rest of the series is a little more open at this end. Uh, we have some work going on here at NIST, which I think pertains, which I will be uh, bringing forth once I rope in a couple of unsuspecting victims here. And um, I think also part of the series, we want to have at least one, maybe two, more open-ended sort of panel sessions. We did that reasonably well. Uh, we, uh, Ontolog Forum, did on the area of ontologies and databases already, where some of you participated. And that gives uh, more of a chance to have a lot more of a dialogue and things like that. Finally, um, and so I would like to say, if anyone has any specific suggestions for speakers or panelists, I would love to hear them. And I'll keep uh, refining the uh, series as we go on. Uh, one final suggestion has been made, which uh, I think might be interesting to discuss here, um, perhaps after the talk or in future meetings, which is whether we want to try and capture 
our notions uh, of ontology evaluation tools, ontology metrics, uh, quality metrics, etc., in some form of tome, uh, a persistent document. So to that end, I know Peter's already created a, a page hanging off of uh, Ontolog Forum on a, a quote-unquote project on ontology quality. And this might be an experiment we might want to pursue where people can contribute into a document um, their thoughts, which if it goes well down the road some number of months from now might be uh, whipped enough into shape we could send it off into an entry in Wikipedia or something like that. So that's uh, food for thought there. Uh, we might want to think about whether we want to collectively um, put that kind of a thing together. So with that, I don't want to um, uh, dwell. There are a few thought-provoking questions on the, on the wiki page, um, which were uh, things that would be good. I think we might want to keep in mind. I know that my personal experience, just the other day, I actually ran into a circumstance where quality assurance and ontology um, quality, I ran smack into it, and that was when uh, actually Connor Schenke was, uh, he's a CEO of Visual Knowledge, was showing me his semantic wiki and showing, oh, you can pull down, you know, various ontologies from uh, Mindshare or whatever. And, of course, the, the begging question is, well, how do I know I can trust this random ontology I'm pulling in to import into my semantic wiki? Is it complete? Is it of high quality? Is it well-formed? You know, all these questions. So um, that's something you're going to clearly start running into as soon as you start trying to import or use anyone's ontology that you didn't have a hand in creating. So I think these are all critical questions we're going to have to confront, and I think this community is a great place to start off some dialogue on what dimensions can we pursue to get a handle on uh, how to assess, how to evaluate an ontology so that we can then use it to do something useful. So I think I've talked more than enough here. Uh, time is marching on. Chris has been very patient. I hope he's still online. Uh, and with that, I'd like to go ahead and introduce uh, Chris Welty, who is uh, now working at IBM, uh, Watson Research Center, as the slide says. Uh, known to many of us, I'm sure, uh, done a lot of great stuff. And in particular, I'd ask whether he'd be willing to talk a little bit about OntoClean and his thoughts, especially what's been happening lately with OntoClean. So, Chris, with that, uh, I'll hand the microphone over to you. Thank you, Steve. So, um, Barry, for your information, you've seen this talk already. So, uh, I'm you still in. Okay. Uh, all right. So, thank you, everyone. Uh, I'm basically going to uh, talk about the, the origin of this talk was really in response to uh, a sort of growing trend in the semantic web community that ontology quality doesn't matter, and there's this sort of um, Web 2.0 mentality uh, that always uh, gets 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 stuck in these kinds of web ventures that make people think that really very bottom up, very sort of hacker type approaches work, and it's all we should be using. So um, I I wanted to 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 object to that, or at least to to try to. Um, slow the momentum of that movement down a little bit and uh, make an analogy to what happened with with hypertext. So 
Actually, the bulk of my uh, talk, uh, the bulk of my talk is about ontology, engineering, and quality, uh, which I think is very important to the notion of evaluation. So ha having some sense of what quality means in the context of ontology um, is is obviously very fundamental to to evaluation. Next slide. Okay, so I'm going to go quickly over this, but uh, what I wanted what I wanted to do in, in these next couple slides was just make an analogy between the early development of the web and the early development of the semantic web, um, and to point out a, an analogous situation in the development of the web that in the early days of web development itself, people were very very much. Um, uh, concerned with just getting things out there and getting stuff to work and this kind of low-hanging fruit idea of uh, really spreading the word and not worrying too much about what how, how good what they did was. Um, show some value and get it out there. Um, next slide. <clears throat> and uh, in the meantime, there was this quite old area of research, and, and you can just open up all the bullets on this page. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a research field in hypertext and computer-human interaction that was concerned with this technology, you know, long before it appeared on the web, and how to do things right, and how to properly and effectively communicate both from an artistic perspective and a scientific perspective. And, uh, you know, the early web developers completely ignored this and, in fact, vehemently denied that it was relevant to the web. The web was about distributed information. The web was about getting people to work together and share information and ideas. Next slide. Getting some background noise. Um, Someone have a question? Okay. Uh, so again, everyone uh, to mute their phone. If you press six, uh, it actually will mute your phone. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, someone out there definitely needs to mute. So um, again, the, the in the early days of the web, the focus was on just getting stuff out there. Uh, but eventually, at some point, uh, the web did get out there. It did spread around. People started using it, and suddenly. Uh, it became important. It became important to companies. It became an important way for companies to present themselves. Uh, there, there's now this whole services industry on the web and so forth. And now suddenly web design is, or th this isn't now, this was at least 10 years ago, it, it became incredibly important to a lot of people to make sure they did do a good job with their web pages, that they were effectively communicating to people using this technology. And so I think that analogy is going to hold for the semantic web. And if you look at um, if you look at the semantic web today, we're more or less uh, at the stage the web was in 1994. It's still the early days. People are still concentrating with OWL and RDF um, on spreading the word and trying to show value and focusing on low-hanging fruit. Uh, and there are a lot of semantic web pundits who uh, poo-poo the ideas of uh, formal ontology or ontology quality. Uh, the most widely used ontology on the web is the friend of a friend ontology. Um, that's a picture of it there on that slide. Uh, there's 
six classes, uh, and nobody's nobody can really precisely say what any of them are supposed to mean, and that's kind of the value, is that uh, anyone can use this, and really, in some sense, all they're saving is that is the um, necessity to type the name person again if they want to uh, um, if they want to uh, you know have a person class in their own ontology. And it doesn't matter to a lot of people today whether or not their use of person in, in their ontology means the same thing as whatever the folk meaning for person is. Um, the fact is that they can reuse that class and so forth. Um, so, uh, next slide. Uh, you know, we've been doing, there's been a field that's been doing research in ontologies for quite some time. I mean, depending on what you mean by ontology, in fact, you could be going back thousands of years. So, um, the, the, my analogy here is that the semantic web is in a similar state as the early web and that eventually people will, uh, as the semantic web technologies get adopted in a more widespread way, that people will start taking this research more seriously as they start to recognize that there is some critical application or some critical need um, for having ontologies really be validated, um, be of high quality, and so forth. Again, this research is not, not only ignored today by a lot of people who do work in the semantic web. It's often um, uh, explicitly poo-pooed, explicitly sort of downplayed that uh, this isn't important. And in fact, some people go so far as to say that this is bad. It's bad to require people to have good quality ontologies. It's sort of against the idea of the semantic web. And all I'm saying is people were saying that about computer-human interaction research uh, and its relevance to the web in the early days of the web. Next slide. Um, right, so this is the same, the same point, basically, that the, the semantic web catchphrase, a little semantics goes a long way, is leading some people to conclude that a lot of semantics is too much. Um, people often cite this 80-20 rule that with 20% of the work, you capture 80% of the utility. Um, but uh, if you look at what's going on in the semantic web now, it doesn't look like a lot of people have gone even past 1%. The folk is, is I, I have said that the simplicity of folk, um, the fact that folk is the most widely used ontology in the semantic web is actually a, a negative thing. I mean, it, it's, it's a trivial, trivial uh, application. And a lot of people look at it and say, if this is the most widely used semantic web application, I mean, I could do this trivially with something else. Uh, it's so simple, people don't actually see that there's any value to this. Um, <clears throat> and then other arguments are that the semantic web is mainly aimed at people like the web was. Uh, excuse me. The semantic web is not for people like the web was. The semantic web is the web of data. Um, and, but my counter to that is, is that it makes it even more important to get it right. You can at least count on people to have some flexibility in their interpretation of data when it's presented in HTML. Uh, that is far less true if you're expecting machines to interoperate. Next slide. So we did this experiment here at IBM uh, a couple of years ago. It was published in um, 
the American Association for Artificial Intelligence National Conference, uh, and we took this search system. It was basically a, a, an augmentation to a keyword search system for the internal IBM product search. So a customer came and they were looking for information about a product. Uh, and the idea was that it would sort of take your keyword search or a, or a natural language question and try to use the full expressivity of the search engine, which most people don't use, the ability to do ands or and nots basically in a in a search language, uh, and it tried to build a more precise query um, using some background knowledge of what IBM's products were and where their web pages were and things like that. Um, so it had, as I said, a little knowledge base on the back end driving it. Uh, this knowledge base had a thesaurus-like um, structure. Uh, it was very taxonomic, and it's or, it, it, you know, it was built before I came to IBM, and it was pretty awful. And uh, I, I could not work on this project without <laughs> trying to fix it. So I thought that I might get something useful out of that effort. And so I, we, we designed our search system so that the, this knowledge base was a, was a pluggable component, and we did some evaluations of the search system with the original knowledge base before I uh, cleaned it up and as with the exact same problem uh, compared it to the exact same sets of questions we compared it to the same system with the cleaned up knowledge base and the better or the cleaner knowledge base was significantly better 18% improvement in F measure that's you know, the F measure is a combination of precision and recall. Um, so that's 18% is is uh, is a pretty good speed up. I mean, that uh, not speed up. It's a pretty good improvement in precision and recall. Uh, and you know, people write papers about two or three percent improvement. Uh, and it wasn't that expensive to uh, to clean up. Um, it took one uh, roughly a man week. To do about uh, to clean up the knowledge base that had about 3,000 classes in it. So there's some evidence, and other people have done experiments. Uh, uh, Bruce Porter at the University of Texas at Austin and his group did some experiments, also with analyzing different aspects of ontologies and how they improve um, the accuracy of natural language processing systems. Um, so there is growing evidence that uh, it, that that whatever quality means for ontologies, that it does matter. And if 18%, for example, is worth uh, you know spending a man week on, then um, it would be worth it to clean up your ontology. And this is the the big problem in doing ontology evaluations for a lot of people. The unknown question. In fact, this very experiment was motivated by a comment of Mike Oshold at Boeing, who when he first learned of the work that I did with Nicola Guarino on Ontoclean, which I'll talk about in a minute, uh, he said, this sounds great. You know, it really appeals to me because he's someone who does uh, ontologies all the time and appreciates logic and likes to see, see justification for things being done right. But it seems like it's going to take a lot of work to apply this methodology. How do I know I really... It, you know, the, the improvement I'm going to get is really worth that effort. 
And so this is an attempt to begin addressing that question, to begin saying, here's the kinds of improvements you can expect with this amount of work. Next slide. So I did a little bit of background work, but you can see there it's obviously quite slanted to stuff that I know of or have been involved with uh, on people who have tried to talk about the quality of ontologies and how it might be measured. Uh, so um, there's a paper, I think, at the Knowledge Capture Conference in 2003 on um, on precisely this, the, the, the dimensions of quality, and this guy uh, had a couple more, but the important ones were the coverage of ontology with respect to a domain, so how much of the domain is actually represented in the ontology, is it logically correct, um, uh, coverage was kind of a breadth measure, measure and richness was kind of a depth measure, uh, and what kinds of things does it commit to in the world, these, these so-called ontological commitments. Um, Alan Rector, who's at the University of Manchester, does a lot of biomedical ontology work and has been doing that for quite some time, has published some ideas about how to make, um, uh, how to make ontologies more maintainable. Uh, and so for him, one dimension of, of ontology quality is how easy or difficult your your style makes the maintenance of that ontology. And so he uh, has some ideas about how to organize and make ontologies more modular. Barry Smith, uh, of course, is always trying to argue that uh, your, your basically the things that your ontology commits to have to actually exist. Uh, he always he has this sort of set of questions that he, he, he holds handy and will ask you about anything in your ontology to see whether or not you you believe your ontology and whether or not it's it's uh, a subject of your rather artificial perspective or if it's um, you know if it's really talking about what's there in the world. Um, Nicola Guarino uh, in the first in the introduction to the first FOIS conference tried to define ontologies as these logical artifacts that whose primary goal is to make the meaning of the terms more clear. So the idea was a, an ontology is a vocabulary with axioms, including subclass axioms and other types of axioms, and the purpose of those, the vocabulary by itself has no meaning other than the labels you choose, and so the point of these axioms is to sort of clear up at least make it more clear what what these um, terms are supposed to mean. And then the primary thing I'll talk about today is, the, is this idea of meta-level consistency based on uh, analysis of the classes themselves from a domain-independent perspective, and I'll, I'll talk more about that later. And finally, something that I've been um, pushing more recently, uh, especially in opposition to a lot of this um, kind of um, semantic web low-hanging fruit who cares about ontology quality type of systems I've seen is the idea of ontologies capturing the invariant structure of a domain. I'll talk about that last. Next slide. By the way, Peter or, or Steve, how, how much time should I be taking here? Um, um, Peter, you probably have a better handle on total. Yeah, our line gets cut off around like 12, uh, 3.30 or time, 12.30. Okay. 
Should I? Should I? Uh, should people just ask questions during the call, or should we save time at the end for questions? I think we could do both uh, if you're open for it. Uh, yeah, that's fine with me. I don't mind being interrupted. If you are targeting to sort of finish about 40 minutes from now, then we'll have enough time for questions. Is that feasible? Okay. Perfect. Okay. Next slide. So a quick note on the idea of making meaning more clear. One of the things I know Mike Gerninger has talked about this a lot as well is the, the use of an ontology to, in order to make meaning more clear. So if you uh, back up one uh, animation here, or can you back up or, or leave it there then? Oh, that's fine. So the, the idea here is, you know, as I said, uh, an ontology has these terms in it, and without any axioms, you're, you've just got terms, and the only meaning you can expect the person to get out of it is from the label you happen to choose. So here I have a relation called part of between an engine and a car, and most people would look at this, and based on what they know of the world, they would probably figure out what I mean here, but obviously for a machine there's nothing here other than the fact that part of is a relation between two things. So how can I uh, help to make what I mean by the part of relation more clear? So if you look on the bottom, those are intended to be logical models, um, which you need to differentiate in your mind from the idea of domain modeling or um, you know, modeling an application. These are logical models, so these are basically objects that, um, and, and, and the arcs are binary relations between them. So, uh, without saying otherwise, it's perfectly possible for a relation to hold between something and itself. Uh, that doesn't really make sense in general for how we understand part of, so I might want to add an axiom, if you go forward one, that says, the part of relation is irreflexive. Go forward one. And so, you know, I could actually, I didn't write the axiom there, but uh, uh, you could, uh, if you know logic, you know what it would look like. And by saying that the part of relation is irreflexive, I basically eliminate this as a possible model of, of, what, of the uh, uh, part of relation. But, Thus far, I haven't eliminated the possibility of something being related by part of to some other thing which is related back to the original. Now, this also doesn't make sense from, a, from how we understand the part of relation in general. So next point. If we add an, an axiom that says that the part of relation is not symmetric, uh, we would eliminate this as a model. Nothing can be part of something that is part of it. Um, and uh, but that doesn't eliminate something from having only one part so I can add another axiom that says next point nothing has only one part oops maybe it might be there we go um, right and so if I have an axiom that says nothing can have only one part I eliminate this, this possible model and what I've done here there's still plenty of other what we call unintended models. There's still plenty of ways to use part of, in, for a machine, to use part of incorrectly. Since again, it doesn't really know what part of means, obviously. Uh, but, but by adding axioms, we can help eliminate a lot of these, and uh, it, it helps not only for machine processing, but also uh, in communicating with other people uh, to help us understand what we mean by our terms.
And there are certainly multiple ways that people understand the part of relation. And so even if you have some intuitive feel for what you think I mean by part of, um, having some axioms that make it more clear always helps. Next slide. And as I said, uh, feel free to, uh, to interrupt and ask a question. Uh, if it gets out of hand, I'll, I'll stop taking them. But at the moment, I'm perfectly happy to take them. So this idea of doing uh, adding constraints to, to make meaning more clear is often called reducing unintended models. So in, in some sense, each, each constraint I talked about in the previous slide was another axiom. Um, and so uh, this has led some people to think that the more axioms you have, the better an ontology is. Uh, and obviously, there, if, if that were an ontology quality metric, it would be trivial to gain such a metric. But nevertheless, uh, it is often the case that ontologies, when, when the designer of an ontology takes the time to, to really carefully axiomatize their domain, you do end up with something that is higher quality. Uh, it's also important to note that these kinds of axioms always involve negation. Uh, or disjointness is a kind of negation, or involves negation. Um, and so uh, it, a lot of people have, have said that, uh, you know, the, the opposite of a constraint are these sort of forward inference axioms or positive axioms like a, all horses are mammals or um, <clears throat> all horses are chess pieces. These would be examples of positive axioms. They don't involve negation. Uh, and that this helps to make meaning of terms clear. You know, if I organize my terms into a hierarchy, uh, the, the possible polysemy of a term like horse can be explained through its position in, in a taxonomy. So if, the, if one ontology, really the, the, the right and the left um, graph there are supposed to be different ontologies. So if one ontology says that all horses are mammals and another ontology says all horses are chess pieces, I have some hope of communicating that uh, actually these two terms, although they have the same labels, are referring to a different thing. But in order for a machine to really understand that, and at least in a first order system, you can't assume that two things, that just because I, I have two different nodes in the graph here, that they're different. In order to say that that the horse on the left is different from the horse at the right, if you go one more, advance one more, oh, back up, there we go, you should see that not equal. So I have to actually say that mammals are not chess pieces. I have to actually say this. In a first order system, uh, there's no reason why mammal and chess piece can't be equal unless you say it isn't. There's no reason why the horse on the left can't be equal to the horse on the right unless I say it isn't. So uh, making meaning more clear through extensive axiomatization is a very important part of, I think, ontology quality. It also has a lot of value that's starting to be demonstrated now for doing ontology alignment. So the better one conjecture is that higher quality ontologies are easier to align because more of their meaning has been specified. Uh, Next slide. Yep. If, if you use more axioms to uh, be more precise in expression, I'm Jeff Schippel, by the way, um, does that, that suggest then that you have limited reuse? You have to use that model again in pretty much the same kind of domain. So you lose a breadth of expressivity in the interest of more precision. 
Is that correct? Um, is that correct? I'm thinking back to your F metric about uh, breadth, so you know, that I'm sort of extrapolating on that. Uh, if I have a lot of axioms in a system, then I'm going to be very, very precise in when I make assertions in that system. But it's going to limit me to be able to use that system to make assertions on some other domain, unless it's a very, very closely related domain. Uh, this is uh, Michael. And biochemistry, say. This is Michael Greener. Um, you know, to a certain extent, that's correct, but there's a difference between uh, filtering out, as Chris was saying, filtering out the unintended models that no one would share um, versus um, not overly and not adding too many axioms so you do inhibit sharing. Right? Yeah, it, there's there definitely a case, there's definitely a sort of a balance that does need to be achieved here. You don't want to over-constrain your system so that it, it, it can never be used for anything else. Um, you want to be careful to, you know, as, as sort of software engineers are often encouraged to try to think about how their how their stuff generalizes so it can be more easily reused. I think that applies here as well, uh, but not to sacrifice the meaning. Uh, so you really don't want if you have a you know if you have an ontology of of different kinds of animals, and somebody decides they want to borrow your ontology in order to represent an ontology of, of, of chess, um, they're going to borrow your horse class. The fact is that you mean something completely different by horse than they do. Uh, uh, you know, the, the horse that you have in your in your thing is alive; it can die, um, and so forth. And 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 if that's important, then then those then that is an inappropriate kind of reuse. Of your ontology, and it can lead to alignment problems. It can lead to other types of problems with reusing it. And the, and the other thing too is that by having the axioms there, it's a more explicit uh, communication of what your intended meaning is. And one of a lot of the problems with ontology alignment is people have these intuitions in their head, and they they'll either propose a mapping or disagree with a mapping because that it conflicts with their intuitions, even though uh, the axioms make no commitment one or the other. So by putting the axioms there, then you can say, oh, well, I, I agree with your ontology except for this last axiom, uh, so you can at least get some partial sharing going on, and it's more explicit. Yeah. Okay, next slide. So another kind of uh, aspect of quality is what I'm going to call a meta-level consistency. The idea here is that the, this is based on the Ontoclean methodology, which is work I did with Nicola Guarino. Our, our purpose is to provide a set of criteria that can be used to analyze ontologies, and particular classes and ontologies, and the taxonomic structure of an ontology based on ideas that are neutral towards any particular ontological position one might take uh, in any particular domain and so forth. So um, we call these the meta-properties, the ontoclean meta-properties, and uh, just a, a note here in the semantic web, the word property means a binary relation, um, but I use it in its original meaning as a unary relation. Uh, so a meta-property is basically a a property of a property or a uh, class of a class, as it might be in the semantic web. So there were uh, 
originally four of these uh, meta properties, identity, unity, rigidity, rigidity, and dependence. We recently added two more, and it's certainly the framework is open to further uh, extension. Next slide. Um, yep, identity is the next slide. Identity is the <coughs> really the foundation of ontological analysis is is the notion of identity. What, how are individuals identified? How are they distinct from other individuals? Uh, how do I know that if I have sort of what what might be two things, how do I know if they're actually the same or if they're different? Um, this is certainly an important part of database conceptual analysis and has been for at least 15 years. Uh, it's an important part of object-oriented programming. When when it, when object-oriented programming is taught, students are, are always encouraged to implement an equality method for their classes so that you know when two instances are the same. Uh, in ontology, our idea of identity is a little bit a little bit less arbitrary than it can be in databases and in object-oriented. Uh, programming where you're sort of in, in, in databases, for example, you're, it's considered a best practice that there be an identity criteria, that there be a primary key for every table. And uh, in the absence of one, you just make one up. You know, you give, you assign an ID or a social security number or something like that in order, and it's the assignment of this that then sort of in an arbitrary sense really makes two things different. Uh, in ontology, it's a little bit more important to ask this question, what, what makes each instance unique? It's a very important part of, of ontological analysis. And one of the things that Nicola and I were trying to capture in the OntoClean methodology was these, was not, again, not any particular ontology, but rather the kinds of analysis that people, especially um, uh, philosophical ontologists, whatever the right word is there, people doing ontology in, 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 in philosophy, not necessarily adopting their ontological positions, but rather trying to capture the argumentation, the argumentation techniques that they use. And this is one of the most important ones. Uh, and that is, what, what are the identity criteria for, for the thing we believe exists? Notice that uh, identity criteria is not membership criteria. It's it's not how I know that something is an instance of a class. It's how I know that two instances of a class are different. Uh, so there's a, this is an important bit of ontological analysis, but it's often very difficult to capture properly. It's important to think about, but as I say there, it's not always productive to precisely specify what your identity criteria are in, in logic. Um, and if you're just going to artificially, if you're just going to add something like a social security number or, a, or an ID to your entities anyway, then, then there's, there's almost no point. Um, you, what you're really saying in that case is, I know this class has an identity criteria, I just don't want to specify it. Uh, and so what you do is you, in the methodology, you say this for a particular class, all of whose instances are identified in the same way, um, you say that this class has an identity criteria, and that's a, a meta property. So some classes have this meta property. All their instances are identified in the same way. 
and some classes do not. And that just means their instances are identified in different ways. Next slide. Uh, keep going. You can go well, to the end of this one. So unity is the second meta property. Unity will, is basically tries to capture the idea that certain classes uh, represent whole, represent holes, holes with a wh. So how do you characterize what makes some individuals in the world holes and uh, some individuals in the world um, are not holes, they're, they're sort of arbitrary sums or something like that. Um, or perhaps there, there are individuals for which the notion of wholeness or partness is, does, just doesn't make sense, like an idea, something like that. So we wanted to be able to capture this. The, the main distinction is between wholes and mere sums. So a mere sum is like a like a, an amount of stuff, like like uh, you know gold. Um, you know, if I have a lump of gold, if gold is a class in my ontology, then one interpretation of that would be that you know any just arbitrary amount of gold is an instance of it, uh, and so that I could really take that instance and cut it up into any number of pieces, and each one would still be an instance of gold. So they're sort of infinitely decomposable versus something like a car where there's a number of ways you can cut up a car which don't uh, result in a car uh, as in any of those parts. So we wanted to be able to make a, a sort of a distinction there and formally speaking we came up with this by saying that holes are, are objects all of whose parts, all and only of whose parts are connected by some some relation. Okay, so there's a relation that holds between all the parts of a object that is a whole. Uh, nothing that is outside that whole, nothing that isn't part of that whole is related to anything that is part by this relation. And therefore the you know a mere sum would not satisfy this criteria because uh, again any of its subparts would have the same relation outside as in. Um, and so the the I, the idea here is that a, next slide is that a class that all of whose instances are are sort of holes under the same relation are have this meta property of of being uh, of, of have carrying unity um, and carrying unity intuitively speaking here uh, a class carries unity if it if it's instances are all the same type of, of whole object, like they're all cars or they're all engines or they're all, um, uh, you know, trees or something like that. If, if you, the, the negation of that is basically not a very useful meta property, but it's there. If, if you have a class whose instances have different unity criteria, um, then, then it's just doesn't have the plus u, doesn't have, doesn't carry unity. Uh, a more interesting, more useful is the anti-unity meta property, which holds of these sort of mere sums. So uh, basically, you have no instance. You have a, a class or a property, none of whose instances are whole, um, and that is the anti-unity. So basically, this distinction between whole objects and mere sums is the um, uh, the plus u 
and tilde u distinction. So, uh, and again, these are properties of classes. So, it's, although I define unity in terms of individual objects, we're talking about classes, all of whose instances are holes by the previous definition, and classes, all of whose instances are not holes. Uh, yeah. You um, spoke about the relation R, which you use. Can, can you speak up? You, you are using this relation R to define what is a whole and what is not, not only a mere sum. Can you give an example for such a relation? On the last slide, there was... Uh, oh, on the previous slide? Yeah, sure. Um, the you know, I've broken this area and I've... I really don't see an easy way of applying that. Yeah, the, so this is similar for identity criteria that it's not required that you actually specify it. And this is just a formalization of the um, of the idea of what a part, what a, what a whole is and versus a, a mere sum. So one one uh, one possible. Uh, relation could be a relation that combines the idea of being the same substance and uh, touching. So if I have a lump of gold uh, on the desk, um, you know, I might say that anything is a part of the same sum if the connection, well, oh, sorry, this would be the negative example. Uh, the positive example would be actually had some, but they're escaping me at the moment. If I remember them, I'll, uh, I'll uh, say them. Okay, I will just look it up. Thanks. Okay. Uh, so next, any other questions on Unity? Next slide. So, Rigidity is a meta property on classes. Uh, here, the idea is that instances of this class are, are essentially instances of the class. Uh, this is one of the more uh, commonly used of the Ontoclean meta properties, probably because it's the easiest to get an intuitive feel for. Um, so, the, the idea of rigidity is that a class is rigid if all its instances are necessarily instances. Their, their existence, in a sense, is fundament, fundamentally tied to there being an instance of the class. So in, in some ontologies, for example, the person class would be rigid if, if uh, some entity uh, ceases to be a person or stops being a person, then it, it means necessarily that that entity has stopped existing. Okay, so and you can think of rigidity as meaning that uh, the instance, instances of this class cannot change their membership. Uh, and so a, a rigid properties tend to be fairly important properties. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. In, uh, in an ontology, non-rigid properties is basically the negation of what it means to be rigid non-rigid property. Some of its instances are changeable and some are not. Uh, it's not very useful, but the more useful distinction is anti-rigidity, 
which is basically that a, a class, all of whose instances must necessarily, it must be possible for every instance of an anti-rigid class to change, to not be. It's not required that they do. It's just required that there always be the possibility. So we've always used the example of a student here, the student class, at least in one sense, the student class is not rigid because nothing is, no student is necessarily a student. Any student can, can possibly not be a student. But I should say that those are just examples. You can certainly have an ontology in which the person class is anti-rigid and the student class is rigid and so forth. However, there is a taxonomic constraint, and there was one for unity as well, which I didn't um, say, but I think it was on the slide. A rigid classes cannot be subsumed, cannot be subclasses of anti-rigid classes. And this is basically where the ontology quality idea of meta-level consistency comes in. Once you do this meta-level analysis, the idea is that your taxonomy, the taxonomy in your ontology must be consistent with respect to these constraints. For example, that are, there should be no rigid classes in your ontology that are subsumed by anti-rigid ones. Next slide. Uh, Chris, this is Leo. Uh, yeah. Uh, rigidity then necessarily has to do with uh, temporality? No. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. We we did some more analysis. Actually, the next slide shows the formalization of it. It just uses um, the modal necessary and possible operators. You, you know, certainly there's a um, there's a, a mapping of that to a temporal modal logic. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can think of rigidity where the possible worlds are times, but um, it's not only that. And in, in fact, it, it's important that the that the formal formalization of rigidity not be specific to time, because uh, the the notion of anti-rigid wouldn't hold of a class. It would be required of every instance that it that it actually did change at some point in its life, and that's not really needed for rigidity. So you can imagine the student class. I mean. We hear legends in graduate school of the students who are students forever. Um, the fact that some particular student never stopped being a student shouldn't shouldn't um, shouldn't make the student class uh, not be anti-rigid. Okay, Does that makes sense. This is Alan Redner. I have another question related to this. Um, Go ahead. So, so yeah, I, I I keep having trouble understanding this too. So um. So, like, if you take a person, the example I just typed into another window, but I don't know if anybody's looking at it. So, th you know, something left a uh, message on my answering machine, and it, I might have a, a, a default assumption that it's a person unless I find out otherwise, and then I find out otherwise that uh, it's actually a fax machine calling the wrong number. So it's possibly a person, but it's not necessarily a person. Oh, okay. But, um, and and your, your definition uh, says, you know, if it's possibly, then it's not necessary. Did I get that? Okay, so remember, the examples I'm giving are just examples. You can have, it sounds like you have an ontology in which you're allowing things to change. 
Um, you know, we could argue actually quite a bit about the example you just gave. I'm sure Barry would be up in arms about it because the fact of the matter is nothing changed except your perception of the world. The fact of the matter is that the fax machine is still a fax machine and the person, people who call you are still people they always were and always will be. So from a, from, from reality's perspective, person and fax machine are rigid. But if you have some information system, for example, that you've implemented in which you allow for this kind of ambiguity um, in, uh, you know, in the, in the in typing of your instances, then it's, you're basically saying that in your ontology, the person class is changeable and therefore is anti-rigid. Is that a property of the ontology or of the logic system? Seems That's like a property of, the logic. of your meaning of person in your ontology. Okay, well, go on. Okay. So remember, uh, and, and this is a, a, a common misconception. These are just examples. Nothing about Ontoclean says person must be rigid. Uh, these are just meta properties. Uh, they're intended to capture the kinds of differences that we're seeing in ontologies. Um, and so the fact that someone may write an ontology in which uh, for a particular application uh, in which it's actually allowable for something to change from a person to something else because your perception changes, for example, um, such an ontology probably shouldn't be aligned with an ontology in which the person class is rigid, things aren't allowed to change. And you can just imagine if you tried to map two ontologies that had that difference and uh, make them interoperate, because you think first they're both labeled with persons, so they must be talking about the same thing, and suddenly in one ontology it's not allowed to change, but and in the other it is, and you try to change it, and you know something breaks. Um, so uh, this is the formalization here uh, of the idea of rigidity. Again, it was formalized using a modal notion. It's actually not. You can think of this as the as the formal semantics of ontoclean that's not actually intended that or, or required that anyone uh, understand this if they have an intuitive feel for how to, uh, how the uh, meta properties work. Next slide. Uh, and again, the uh, go forward, uh, stop there. So here the idea is that this rigidity constraint is there because basically um, the idea of the rigidity constraint is, again, it's that a rigid class cannot be subsumed by an anti-rigid class. And the reason for that is that if, if you have some class P, which is a subclass of Q, and Q is anti-rigid and P is rigid, uh, what, again, what anti-rigid means is that any instance must, every instance of Q must be allowed to cease to be an instance. So imagine if I took the um, the instance of link from this object O10 to Q away. Uh, well, if I took it away, then the then the, inst the inference that everyone associates with the subclass relation would just put it right back. <laughs> because I cannot break since P is rigid. I cannot break the instance of link between O10 and P. Okay. So stepping forward, there's some animation there that's probably not going to come across.
Um, and so, again, I keep saying this. One of the ideas here was that you can go forward. One of the ideas here was that we, we weren't taking any particular, making any particular commitment to any particular ontology, but, again, trying to capture the kinds of distinctions uh, that we see in ontologies and help people understand them and also be able to provide some measurement of quality I called it meta-level consistency that lets me judge ontologies and say that one might be better than the other. So here we, we can see that, that um, the ontology on the left and the ontology on the right, this was apparently some famous uh, uh, database modeling problem that someone had, had uh, called for solutions for, and uh, the Ontology on the right was agreed by some committee to be better. One of the reasons it was agreed to be better was that it sort of captured um, this sort of famous problem that if you if you if you want to say that um, <clears throat> you basically have a has part relation on computer and you you want to put a restriction there on the on the range of the, uh, the has part relation for computer. And so what a lot of people end up doing is making up some artificial class uh, that's really just there to fill the range restriction for that relation. Um, but if you look at it and you see uh, what it says, it basically says that a disk drive is a computer part. Um, but uh, if you think about it, at, at least as it's written and, in fact, as it was intended, nothing is necessarily a computer part. Anything like a disk drive that is taken out of a computer is no longer a computer part. And uh, the important thing here, you can argue with that example if you like, but the important thing here is that is what was intended by the class computer part in the ontology on the left and in the ontology on the right. Again, that particular example was intended to be the meaning of this class. Nothing is necessarily a computer part. Something is a computer part if it's a part of a computer. Um, and so uh, these are the kinds of things that it's very difficult to capture formally in an ontology in, in, with axioms. Okay, You might want to put it in your documentation. But you end up with this interesting problem that if disk drives and memory are things that are rigid, they're, they're rigid properties, nothing is a disk drive unless, uh, no disk drive can stop being a disk drive unless it's destroyed, um, then you end up with this, at least according to the uh, ontoclean constraints, you see that disk drive is rigid and computer part is anti-rigid, and according to our constraints, those two classes can't, one can't subsume the other. And so the ontology on the right captures this. It captures the intended meaning of the three classes, disk drive, computer part, and memory, um, but the ontology is consistent with respect to this meta-property assignment. And again, I should say, as is often the case with this analysis, a committee of sort of database modeling experts apparently judged the model on the right to be the more accurate way to model this particular uh, problem. Next slide. So um, uh, there's a, basically a conjecture that uh, <laughs> um, ha 
having, you know, I keep saying what we're trying to capture here are distinctions between between classes and ontologies that we often see and that are difficult to capture otherwise. And this also, I want to say it's, it's a better way of capturing the meaning, of specifying the meaning of classes and ontology. One, another reason, in addition to measuring ontology quality, another reason to better capture the meaning of classes is to do ontology alignment. So if you have two ontologies, this is a real example. If you have two ontologies, these are two common, uh, one was a common sense ontology and the other was an ontology of um, the British food, food and uh, something like what, what the British equivalent of the Food and Drug Administration is in the, in the U.S. And they had a taxonomy of different types of food and someone was trying to do as some project a, uh, an alignment of that ontology with some common sense ontology. I think it was WordNet. And, well, let's pretend WordNet's an ontology. So the idea was you have these labels on, you know, classes of things, on properties in your ontology, and you think, well, there's food in one and food in the other, and there's apple in one and apple in the other, and, hey, look, apple's a subclass of food in both. These must be the same. But actually, as the as it was intended in the ontology on the right, next slide. I was sitting here pressing my spacebar trying to get it to advance. Um, if we do the meta-level alignment, we see what was actually intended uh, by the ontology on the right uh, by food was that in, in that ontology, the class food represented anything that was eaten. Uh, so this is basically a role in a relationship. It, it, as soon as you eat something, it becomes food. Okay. Um, in the ontology on the right, the class food actually, uh, excuse me, in the ontology on the left, the class food actually referred to anything which is grown or manufactured specifically for people to eat. Um, again, these are the same label, two classes. They're pretty close. I mean, they're pretty similar. But nevertheless, clearly in intention of the ontology designer, the class on the left is different from the class on the right. And in fact, dangerously so, okay? Because, again, poison could be food in the ontology on the right. As soon as you eat it, whether you live through the eating or not, as soon as you eat something, you are an instance of food according to the ontology on the right. But poison is not intended for people to eat, or at least I, I should take that back. There's maybe a more precise definition of food um, in, the, in this ontology here, but it was specifically uh, food that you were supposed to eat. Uh, and so here doing this meta-level analysis actually shows you that these are two different classes. They have different meta-level, they have different meta-property assignments. Uh, if two classes have different meta-property assignments, they are necessarily different classes. Next slide. Uh, let's skip this. Um, yeah, let's skip that one. Go ahead. Next one. So uh, our idea, we, we carried this idea a little bit forward to come up with some sort of guiding principles for defining ontologies 
which has more recently led me to this idea of ontology specifying the invariant structure of a domain. So let me just talk about the idea of the backbone taxonomy. Here the idea was, in addition to these meta-properties, we also particularly liked this idea of quine that, you know, there's no, no entity without identity. And, and one, one characterization of what that means is that you can't be an entity in the world unless there's some way to distinguish you, to identify you for, for, for agents, cognitive agents in the world to perceive that the entity is there. There must be some way to tell entities apart in order for them to exist. Um, <clears throat> so we wanted to include that idea in the methodology somehow. And uh, so we basically have this sort of meta-level axiom in Ontoclean that requires that every entity in the domain must have an identity criteria and it must get it from a class. Uh, and so we call the the classes uh, sortal, so basically a, a class that has the identity meta property is called a sortal. And sortals are um, <clears throat> rigid sortals, excuse me, are the classes that, uh, again, everything instantiates, uh, all instances of those classes are, are uh, necessarily instances and they get their identity criteria from from that class as well, so it's an unchangeable identity criteria. The identity criteria must always hold for the existence of that entity. Um, so the, the the sort of the structure of Ontoclean is set up so that this must hold of, of every instance, every entity in the universe of discourse. And so we end up with these classes, these rigid sortals that I call types here. A type is a rigid sortal, so it's a class that carries the identity meta property and also the rigidity meta property. Okay, so all of the types, rigid sortals in an ontology, um, there's a taxonomy of them, and those types, those classes. Rarely just locked in. Could you mute please? Press six. So whoever just dialed in, please mute your phone or press six. Person who just dialed in, could you press six, please? Thank you. Okay. Um, so uh, again, these rigid sortals, the taxonomy of rigid sortals, form something that we're calling the backbone taxonomy. And the backbone taxonomy just I mean, it sort of trivially follows from the from the definition, specifies the invariant structure of a domain. Okay, every entity must instantiate at least one of these classes, and they must instantiate them in a rigid way. That is, they're unchangeable, unchangeably instances of those of those classes. Uh, they get their identity from those classes, and so these classes span the domain, um, and they're sort of the, the more most important um, uh, classes from a variety of perspectives. And they have, for example, the highest organizational value. Uh, they tend to be the ones whose uh, labels are used to uh, describe their instances and so forth. Next slide. 
sort of an example that Nicole and I uh, often use when presenting um, OncoClean here. The heavier lines are intended to be the subclass relations between the rigid sortals, so that the heavier lines there are the backbone taxonomy of this ontology. And the idea is that it should be a subset of the classes in your ontology. We're not claiming that this should be everything, uh, but that it's the most important for a variety of reasons, the most important classes and the, sort of the most important taxonomic structure in your ontology. Next slide. Um, okay, so in several uh, projects that we've done here trying to study these much uh, more, you know, things like WordNet and uh, I don't know exactly what to call them, these resources that have sort of a, a taxonomic structure and they, in many ways, they feel like ontologies. The WordNet has a very simple, very high-level ontology in it. They have a notion of um, uh, they have a notion of uh, amount of matter and, and living being and things. There, there's these very high-level uh, concepts in uh, in WordNet that don't actually correspond to sin sets, but that are uh, are just there for organizational reasons and make some minimal ontological commitment. Um, and so, you know, there's been a lot of work looking at these kinds of things and trying to treat them as ontologies or use them as ontologies or align them with more formally specified ontologies and so forth. And so we, we've been doing work like that as well. And uh, in particular, Bruce Porter's group did some work trying to use a, uh, an ontology like WordNet um, to interpret noun compounds. And what they found, one of the things they did was basically try to uh, remove from a taxonomy, uh, you know, identify a particular depth just by its, uh, you know, its, its distance from the root, and then remove everything, all the classes at that depth. And believe it or not, in that work they found that the sort of um, upper level, not the not the top most or the second most, but but uh, sort of this high level, these high level classes in the ontology were had the most impact on the performance of their system. <clears throat> um, and then in the work that we did that I talked about earlier, this empirical test. Uh, with a natural language system, we found a very similar thing. It was the high-level classes that were the most important to our performance. Uh, it makes sense because they just affected so many more uh, types of, of um, queries. That it was the most important part of the ontology to get right, to have uh, consistent and clean. Uh, next slide. And so we're calling this the up upper-level or the the, um, the upper backbone, and the upper backbone is um, now, this is sort of an unproven conjecture on my part, again, based on my experience writing ontologies and dealing with systems that use ontologies, and from that I just get this sort of seat-of-the-pants 
bad reaction to subject hierarchies, to thesauri-like word net, to these new things coming along called folksonomies, which are these uh, really bottom-up constructed um, uh, taxonomies based on social tagging. And people want to call these things ontologies, and it's always kind of given me a, a negative reaction. I know it's been uh, a sore point with Nicola and with Barry as well. Uh, that these things are not really ontologies, and um, and it, you know we don't seem to be doing any good. They they're only growing. They're, it's not that they're useless. Uh, it's not that I mean to say that the story or subject hierarchies or folksonomies are useless. I just don't think they're ontologies. I just don't think they're very good ontologies uh, or ontologies at all. And so one thing that that occurred to me when looking at some of these is that they don't really attempt to map out what all the kinds of things are in any fundamental way in their universes of discourse. They're just out there to provide ways to organize stuff, whatever it happens to be, books, web pages, people, and, uh, and not to actually identify what kinds of things there are in the universe. You know, there's a big difference between saying this is a book about fish and saying that fish is a fundamental type of thing in the world. Um, really, what WordNet commits to from an ontological perspective is that there are words, and that's about it. Um, and so uh, the same goes for subject hierarchies in, uh, in libraries. The only ontology they have is that there are books. That's their real ontology. Uh, and so that's their sort of invariant, that is the invariant structure of their domain. And uh, so this is a recent idea, recent conjecture that we've been playing around a little bit, uh, and I'd like to have some more, some more evidence to support this idea. But uh, again, I'm using it to sort of another way to characterize what I think is poor quality in these other artifacts. Next slide. Okay, so I was talking here about, although we ranged a little bit, my primarily wanted to focus on what ontology quality is and how it can be um, measured so that you can do evaluations. Uh, I think that I agree with Nicola that ontology should be clarifying meaning. I, I really think that's the most important part of, of these information system ontologies um, and that uh, Identity criteria is important. Even if it's difficult to capture, it's, it's important to at least try to approximate it. Uh, I, the, obviously, I believe that these, uh, this meta-level analysis is a good way to understand your ontologies and make them better quality. And again, as a recent conjecture, I think ontology should be specifying the invariant structure of a domain and not just some ad hoc structure. That's it. Okay, thank you, Chris. This is Steve. Uh, I think we have maybe five or ten minutes for questions, and then I'll sort of wrap it up before we lose the line. So, but I'll let you field your own questions, Chris. Anyone have any questions? Uh, Peter Yim here. Uh, the question about like, the taxonomies and the sauri and so on, and I guess the sore point is that they try to use or, or quote-unquote steal, probably, from your perspective, the, 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 the label ontology. Uh, if, I mean, it's properly identified that, I mean, 
these are different things, and if we properly maybe try to axiomatize what taxonomies are, what the sori are, we might sort of clarify the whole situation. Don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I think probably one of my guiding principles in doing any ontology engineering with people is to always avoid the label wars. People always want to argue about what a particular term means. And that's really not that important. Uh, it's important to capture what what kinds of things people see, uh, and then you can assign the labels later. So I think probably the easiest solution to the problem I see is going to be to change the name of ontology to something else <laughs> and let them use ontology now. <laughs> I thought you start axiomatizing them. <laughs> well, you can try to axiomatize them, but again, there's even if you axiomatize them, you're going to find that they don't specify the invariant structure of the domain. That's the aspect of it that I think is very non-ontological. Uh, you know, if you look at a subject hierarchy, you may see some, uh, you know, some characterization of the kinds of things that exist in the world, but um, most of the terms in a subject hierarchy are not. They're just different ways of organizing your books uh, or organizing your web pages. And, and that is, you know, again, if you return to the roots of ontology and what it really was intended to mean when the word was coined 300 years ago, it wasn't uh, coined to, uh, it wasn't referring to w the ways in which people organize information. It was referring to what kinds of things exist in the universe. Mm. Uh, this is Steve. Sort of an observation on my part, then, from hearing what you're saying is, as we as a community move forward, maybe what we need to think about is different classes of uh, quality of ontologies, if you like. We can have sort of class one ontology, which is fully axiomatized, satisfies all the properties you're talking about, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there could be some other class, larger number than one, uh, which is more akin to a folksonomy or something like that so that um, they might be all considered in one way or another a sort of ontology, but as long as everyone knows what they're getting, then they can recognize that they may be living with some ambiguity as to, you know, what is food or isn't food. Um, and depending on the purpose, you know, the use they're going to make of that ontology, that may be okay or maybe not. And if you need rigor and reliability, you're going to have better migrate up toward the more high-class uh, on Does that sound practical? Uh, it does sound, sound practical. Uh, the the, 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 the counter-argument there is the, is the uh, you know, in, in the Y2K days, what you heard all the time were people saying that, you know, the, the reason we're having this problem is because we're using code that nobody ever expected would still be in use today. And, uh, you know, and that was uh, a couple years ago. Um, and so when you're, you know, one of the things the web gives us is, uh, one of the things the web, I hope, is putting into everyone's mind is that the chances of reuse are, are a lot higher. You know, you used to have to go to great pains to get your stuff reused. 
Mm-hmm. And now the web really facilitates reuse, and a lot of people are seeing reuse, and they're putting their stuff out on the web and finding that other people are using it, and they're really excited about it. And then suddenly someone says, but, you know, it's not working for me. And the response is, well, I never really intended for it to be used for that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree completely. And so if we are, maybe we can put in place some kind of a, um, you know, framework in which people can know what they're getting, um, which hopefully won't have associated with any kind of judgment as to worthiness for any application whatsoever, maybe we can add some value that way. Yes. Uh, Steve, this is Leo. Uh, another issue, though, is that you really do have to characterize the kind of model that you're dealing with, you know, whether it's a thesaurus or an ontology. I mean, I think we need to find these things well. Uh, so, so a high-end ontology in the, in the, along the lines that Chris is uh, uh, using the meta properties here for an ontoclean, it's probably a logical theory. Um, uh, the, the problem is that, uh, you know, in the embrace of semantic web technologies, a lot of crap is getting ontologized, so, so to speak. So in other words, uh, the SARI are being translated uh, directly into uh, how uh, using uh, the subclass, uh, if you will, structure of how, so that what's formerly uh, a term uh, broader than or narrower than term uh, semantic relation, a weak relation, becomes something stronger, which is more like a subclass relation. Mm-hmm. So that you see that the SORI are now being treated as ontologies, and the, the, it's too strong. Right, so you can't. There's certain entailments that are, you know, thereby licensed as a subclass relation that's illegitimate from the perspective of what these things uh, originally were, which were thesauri uh, dealing with terms. So uh, you need, uh, to me, you need to characterize these, with, define these things well, but also give people guidelines. Uh, you know, there is an existing paper out there on how to convert the SRI to uh, semantic web to OWL, semantic web technologies, but a lot of folks don't follow that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right, and that, that's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. Uh, that really r- rubbed me the wrong way was that these it's happening on a very wide scale that, that the SRI are being converted to OWL and they're using subclass because it's Instead of the more general then, because it's uh, you know it's transitive. <laughs> All transitive relations are the same, mean the same thing, right? No. So, <clears throat> right. Well, I, I agree. I, I guess I'm saying we have to figure out how to coexist with pragmatism. That the fact that the world isn't going to stop on a dime just because we tell them that they're not doing it right. So we have to find a way to retain the recognition or of quality where it is desired while yeah. the rest of the, you know, applications are marching along. Yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not really a hardliner in any respect, but I, I, think, I do think, as I said at the beginning, it's important to learn from the history of the web I don't think it makes sense to sort of cave in. I don't think it makes sense to say, oh, all right, I guess ontology quality really doesn't matter. Um, 
yeah, there's a lot of use in these other things, blah, blah, blah. I mean, even if those other applications are useful and are providing value, I don't think it makes sense. I don't think it's going to be the right thing to do. Cave in on quality and agree that it doesn't really matter and just continue to show uh, how we need to continue defining what, what it means. Right. Uh, help people understand it and help people understand what the value of higher quality ontologies are, I think that's the way to coexist. You know, it's, I agree. it's always going to be a role for, look, you know, there's an incredibly large software company in this world that makes a lot of really crappy software that everyone uses. Right. So there's obviously a role for, for crappy stuff, um, and uh, that will continue. But like what happened with the web, there, there, as people started to realize what quality meant for web pages, they started paying more attention to it. Exactly. So it seems like what some of us at least can do as provide value to the world is uh, provide a means to allow people to know what they're getting. Yes. Attributes, whatever. Right. I think you also need some large-scale demonstrations of where the high-quality ontology makes a big difference for a real-world problem. Probably easier to show where a lower-quality one gets you into trouble, but, yeah, I think either one would work. Well, there is a, a problem in the biomedical domain. Um, the, I, I, I think that this uh, will community, the people recognize the need for higher uh, quality ontologies and, for example, they made the decision of getting rid, uh, rid of classes like blue eye and green eye in their um, anatomy so, and now make the distinction between the anatomy and uh, the ontology of quality so that you have a clear distinction and you uh, have only what uh, was called uh, Invariant structures. Uh, you focus only on ontologies which capture invariant structures. Because in the ontology of colors, of course, blue, red, and green are invariant. But you don't care about um, blue eyes which can change to yellow eyes. And the, by the, um, right. the genes kick in. Right. I think it might be uh, appropriate, Peter, you tell me, but we're getting awful close to the 3.30 time when I guess we're going to get disconnected. Uh, is that right? Uh, five more minutes. Uh, there's one question on the uh, shared screen that maybe one of you can take up, uh, which I guess uh, addresses maybe what uh, part of what this mini-series is about, too, uh, from Attila Elchi in Turkey. Uh, can, can you see it on the on the yeah I see um, so uh, I mean part of what I was talking about was to identify what the you know what the different um, there's, there's got to be more than one metric for ontology quality and uh, so I was trying to outline some of them um, Aldo then Jamie has done some work on this yeah I mean he, I'm sure he'd be willing to talk to give an ontologue talk I don't know the other one oh is that uh, no, I don't know who Tello and Gomez Perez is. Yeah, but there's certainly other work. As I said, my the slide I showed was was very skewed towards stuff that uh, I've been involved in or knew about. Yeah. So, Steve, you had asked me about where Ontoclean has gone. I'll just take a second to say that uh, uh, we're it's 
very slow. We certainly welcome other people to contribute. We need other meta properties. We've added two new ones, one specifically addressing this temporal change issue, which is a, a big uh, confusion in when it comes to rigidity, uh, and another one to talk about which just fell out of that work, but it was an easy one, something called actuality, classes whose instances actually exist versus classes whose instances don't, don't actually exist. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so there's a paper on that. There's a, actually an uh, OntoClean website on the OntoWorld wiki, uh, which is a, let's see, can I type into this? So uh, that's the OntoWorld Wiki, and there's an OntoClean um, website there that talks about some of this stuff. Okay. Yeah, we better hand this back to Steve. Okay, well, um, wow, I didn't even get some of the things you were talking about, Chris, there, but I'm going to go back and <laughs> look at them afterwards. Yeah, uh, sorry, I went pretty fast. Well, that's fair enough. I'm I'm a relative novice at all of this, but... Uh, I just, uh, first of all, thank you for uh, sharing your time with us, and I want to remind people that the next uh, episode in this mini-series is Barry Smith speaking on the 21st of December. I hope people are going to be around. It's the Thursday before Christmas, so uh, uh, hopefully people will still be part of work at least until the weekend, those of you who celebrate Christmas, and uh, then we'll be moving into the 2007. And um, I think if people do give some thoughts to the project page, maybe we can start collaboratively jotting down some of these takeaways, like, you know, what are some of those metrics and that the dimensions by which we could describe an ontology um, and qualify an ontology. Uh, maybe we could piece together something that actually constitutes a good white paper on how one could get one's arms around uh, characterizing different levels of quality for an ontology. But anyway, don't really mean to have the last word, but we're about out of time. And Peter, do you have any other sort of house cleaning things you want to catch up on here? Sure. Uh, 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 An announcement for the next week, next Thursday, same time, uh, we have as our invited speaker, Pat Hayes, who's going to uh, tell us about uh, common logic and IKL. And uh, I actually just recently heard uh, Chris, Chris Welty, give sort of a similar talk, and I pinged Pat, and Pat says I'm going to tell something that's quite different. So let's find out. So actually, as it turns out, Pat Hayes and I are the same person. (laughs) (laughs) That explains a lot. (laughs) <laughs> okay, well, according to this time, it just turned into 3.30 about five seconds ago. <laughs> so, thanks, everyone, for coming. Thank, Thank you. you. See you next week. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.